Yesterday, I was driving down Dave Lyle Boulevard, and uh, a vehicle caught my attention and got the, got the wheels turning. And I got to thinking of how there are people in our lives, I was thinking of myself particularly, but all of us, there are people in our lives who are not, not here anymore whether it's friends, parents, grandparents, people we've admired, and we miss them. And as I was thinking that, the thought struck me that, you know what, though? I'm going to have eternity to get to know them better. Um, You know, I haven't seen my, my parents since 2006, But I'm going to get to spend time with them for eternity. And then it struck me that there's all these other people that I want to meet and get to know, including the apostles, including other people that I've heard about, that I've read about. And we're going to have eternity to get to know these people. It's not like, well, I have to I have to hurry off because I have to get to this person. And it it just kind of boggles the mind to think about eternity. And that's what the book of Revelation is about, how all of that is going to come come about. So at one point, we will have eternity. And, you know, I can't, if I try to wrap my mind around that, uh, it'll just blow up. So anyway, on to... The chapter here, Revelation 2. It's about the church at Smyrna. And Smyrna was the second largest and to some the most beautiful city in the whole province of Asia. It's also the only one of the seven cities that we're talking about that still exists today. Today the city is known as Izmir in modern day Turkey. Now, The Smyrna part of it, there's not much left. A few ruins and archaeological sites, but it is still the same city. The island of Patmos is just off the coast of Turkey. When I looked at a map, I thought, gosh, that's pretty close to all of those cities. Smyrna was a fully Roman city. It was the first city in Asia to build a temple to Roma, the spirit of Rome. It had been destroyed some 700 years before John wrote this letter. And it had been rebuilt just 300 years later into a major seaport. So when Jesus tells John to write the words from the first and the last, he that was dead and came to life, he may have been alluding to this destruction of the city and its resurrection. Smyrna was later destroyed again by an earthquake in 178 AD. And most of the old section, as I said before, is an archaeological site alongside the modern city of Izmir. Now, Smyrna's name may have come from one of two things, or both. Either a Greek myth about an Amazon named Smyrna, or from the ancient Greek name for myrrh 
And we have heard of myrrh before. It's one of the gifts that the wise man, the wise man gave to, to Jesus. Uh, myrrh was one of the spices that they anointed bodies with for burial. It's evidently a pretty sweet-smelling spice. That was the primary export of the city. Its location on a river made it a major port. Now, during the time of the New Testament, Smyrna created a cult of Rome in an effort to win the support and the favor of the Romans. And at one time, there was a temple built to Emperor Tiberius. So Smyrna was a wealthy city steeped in emperor worship. So let's jump right into the letter itself. It's the shortest, and it's one of only two that doesn't have any rebuke or any call to repent in it. So the Smyrnans may have been doing something right. Verse 8, Jesus directs this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Now, some people believe that Polycarp, one of the early church fathers, was the recipient of this letter. He was actually ordained by John to be the the bishop or the elder there at Smyrna. Now, Polycarp was martyred in the year 155. And he made this statement. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who hath saved me? So if Polycarp had been serving Christ for 86 years, he would have started serving Christ, whether it was as, as the elder or becoming a Christian, right around the year 69. So this letter could have been written to him. It depends on whether you believe Revelation was written before A.D. 70 or after A.D. 70. The church father Tertullian tells us that Polycarp was consecrated bishop by the apostle John. And Irenaeus, Eusebius, and Jerome agreed. These are all people who knew the apostles or at least knew somebody who knew the apostles. Jesus, the one sending this letter, describes himself as the first and the last. In Greek, the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. Jesus says he was dead and came back to life. The city of Smyrna had been dead and had come back to life. Verse 9, Jesus says, I know your works, your tribulations, and your poverty. They were a faithful church. And even though they were undergoing persecution for their faith, they remained true to their king. In the midst of a wealthy city, they were poor in material things, but they were actually rich. The Apostle James, in his letter, wrote that God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. In Luke 6.20, Jesus pronounces blessing on those who are poor because the kingdom of God belongs to them. Jesus then says that he knows the blasphemy of the ones who are persecuting the church. They say they are Jews, but are not. 
I've actually heard that some people are calling John an anti-Semite here. Well, John was Jewish, so, you know. And this doesn't mean that they were not physically descended from Abraham. They were. They were circumcised. They kept to the ceremonial law. They did all of that stuff. But it was all outward. Romans 2.29 says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from people, but from God. So while they may have been physical children of Abraham, Jesus says that they are not true Jews. He then describes them as being of a synagogue of Satan. And Smyrna had the largest Jewish population of any city in Asia. And if this was written before the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, the main adversaries of the church would have been the Jews. The Romans had not really gotten into persecuting the, the Christians yet, although it was coming. Now, I believe that the phrase synagogue of Satan means not necessarily the devil. The Jews were not in their synagogue making sacrifices and worshiping the devil. But the word Satan at its core means accuser. When Jesus says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, I don't think he's calling him the devil. He's saying, you're accusing me. You're going against me. The Jews themselves themselves could not carry out any official persecution, just like the Jews with Jesus. They could not execute him. They had to get Rome to do it. But they could spread rumors to the Roman authorities and then let them do the persecuting. The church in Philadelphia evidently underwent the same kind of persecution. So here the Jewish people were, the Jews in name only, accusing the Christians of being anti-Roman, essentially. And later the Romans came to agree with that. Verse 10. Here Jesus gives the church a heads up about what is to come, along with some encouragement. He tells the people in Smyrna to not be afraid of any of the things they are about to suffer. I have a hard time hearing that. Don't be afraid. You're going to suffer. Well, wait, wait. What do you mean? Now, he doesn't say that they're not going to suffer, but that they don't need to fear. In Luke one twenty four, Jesus tells his disciples not to fear those who can kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. Peter, in his first letter, tells his readers, even if you suffer for righteousness sake, do not be afraid of their threats or be troubled. Being fearless doesn't necessarily mean the complete absence of fear. I'm sure that at times the people in Smyrna and other cities 
were scared of what was going to happen. But it's more the refusal to give in to intimidation and threats of violence and to continue in their allegiance to their king. Going back to Polycarp, they ask him numerous times, will you reject Jesus? Will you give up your allegiance to him? And Polycarp basically was not uh, made fearful by that intimidation. He said, essentially, all that he has done for me, he's never abandoned me. How can I abandon him? That was the same attitude that Jesus was telling the people in Smyrna to take. And Jesus continues by telling the, pe- the believers in Smyrna that the devil is going to throw some of them in prison in order to test them. This may refer to the persecution to come from the synagogue of Satan. Uh, It probably was from the Jews in Smyrna, either directly or by convincing the Roman authorities that these Christians were a danger to Rome. Jesus tells the church that they should not fear because the testing of their faith will bring glory to God and will give them endurance. James' letter tells the readers to consider it joy when they are tested because the testing of their faith produces endurance and endurance brings a life that is complete and lacking nothing. So the church is told that this time of testing and tribulation will last 10 days. It seems kind of odd that such a specific period of time is going to be put on this. It's almost like Jesus is saying, it'll start here and end here. We don't know if that's exactly what he was saying or not. Some say that the 10 days refers to the 10 waves of persecution from the Roman Empire or the 10 emperors who were said to have persecuted the church. Others state that 10 days is simply a contrast to longer periods of time in Revelation and suggests that their tribulation will be for a relatively short period of time compared to what others are going to go through. Those who believe that a day equals a year in, in prophecy and Revelation believe that the 10 days corresponds to the 10-year period of persecution under Diocletian, who, interestingly enough, was the 10th emperor to persecute the church. Now, Jesus does not promise to protect this church from persecution or even martyrdom. He does say that if they remain faithful all the way to death, They will receive the crown of life. It's one translation that reads, Be faithful to the end, even if you have to die. And then I will give you the victor's wreath of life. Smyrna was a city that was well known for its athletic games. They may have hosted the Super Bowl at one point. We don't know. But the winners were crowned with a victor's wreath believe it was usually made of olive leaves. 
The emperors and the others who tried to destroy the church lost their crowns. Of course, it's hard to wear a crown when you're dead. But those martyrs will receive an incorruptible crown in the new creation. Now, if you remember that myrrh was a major export for Smyrna. It's interesting the way myrrh is produced. There's a myrrh tree, and it produces resin. The way they get the resin is they cut or wound the myrrh tree, and then they collect the resin that comes out of the wounds. Then to release the fragrance, the resin is crushed. In the same way, the wounding and crushing of the martyrs produced a fragrant aroma to God. Those who were persecuted and killed were the first fruits of a massive number of people turning to and following Jesus. As Tertullian wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Verse 11, Jesus finishes this letter by saying, whoever has an ear, which could mean everyone, or it could mean those who are inclined towards listening, should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, and that those who overcome by going all the way to death for the sake of Christ will not be hurt by the second death. And we know, because most of us have read the end of the book, that the second death is referring to the fires of eternal hell. So how is this letter seen by the different groups? Well, the preterists, remember, those are the people who say it was only written for the first century. And the idealists who see truths in it, but not really necessarily concrete events. They, along with a few others, believe that this letter, along with the other six letters, was addressed to the historic churches that are named and extended to other churches at the same time who were going through other similar things. But they don't go any further than that. That's all there is. It was just then. Historicists and some futurists see each church as an actual church, but they also see parallels between the letters and periods of church history. The church in Smyrna would be parallel with the period of church history between 100 and 313 A.D., which was a period of great persecution. Now, I think it's true that there have been and are churches and groups of churches in different time periods that are similar to each church in Revelation. And I think the things that we read here can definitely be applied through church history and even in our day today. I don't believe that all the churches of each period of time can be grouped together and treated the same. The seven churches in Asia Minor during this time period were all different in many ways. I also don't believe that when one church age stopped, all of the churches of the previous age ceased to exist. Today, there are churches all around the world that would fit into one description or another of one of the churches of Revelation. 
Uh, as I was reading and, and studying for this, I found an interesting side note that, uh, that maybe you all would like, maybe not. Those who are in the Reformed tradition, according to, to the source I read, object to being identified with the Church of Sardis. Uh, the Church of the Reformation is identified with the Church of Sardis because the Sardis Church is the one that had the reputation for being alive but was really dead. So make, uh, make what you want out of that. Another issue I have with seeing each church age as corresponding to one of the seven churches is a somewhat myopic view of the church as a whole. Many futurists, especially the fundamentalist dispensationalists, preach that we are now in the Laodicean age. It's the age of lukewarm churches. Well, that may be true in this country or at least parts of this country. I wouldn't want to go so far as to tell the church in China church in the Middle East or other places that are being persecuted, telling them that they're lukewarm and Jesus is about to spit them out of his mouth. I don't think you can say that to the Christians in Iran, especially. Now, that being said, I do believe there are things that we can learn from this letter to a church that was being reviled and persecuted for the sake of Christ. We do live in a world that is becoming increasingly either bored with or hostile to those who claim Jesus as king. Our allegiance to King Jesus means that we don't see other people, other systems, other institutions as king. We put our hope in things beyond this world, and we call for others to do the same. We've not experienced any persecution even remotely close to what the early church went through. But it may be coming. We don't know. It may not be in our lifetime. It may be our children and grandchildren. John was given revelation to reveal the true king in the midst of Babylon. And we live in the midst of of Babylon. The more we show those around us the life of subjects of the, of the true king, the closer we will get to the false kings and false gods of this world deciding that we are a dangerous group of people. If it does come to something like that, something like what happened to the church of Smyrna, let us remember the words of our Savior and Lord. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. God help us to be true to our King.